Welcome to Rising Up with me, Yasmin Khan, a podcast about cultivating hope in a world that feels like it's imploding. This week's guest is Homar Dashtaki, founder of the White Moustache Yogurt Company in Brooklyn, New York. Homer and her family make old world handmade yogurt inspired by sweet memories of their life in Iran and Zoroastrian traditions of her heritage. Zoroastrianism is the ancient religion of Iran, steeped in symbolism around the element of fire, and its traditions have played a big role in the life of all Iranians today, myself included, from the celebrations around Nowruz, the Persian New Year, to Shabayalda, the winter solstice. All of which means, as you'll hear, I was really excited to speak to Homer, as she brings together so many elements of food, culture, heritage and values that I respect. Not only that, she does it with an infectious energy and a humour that always leaves me desperate to spend days with her and book a flight to New York immediately. In the conversation, we talk about her new book, Yogurt and Way, Recipes of an Iranian Immigrant Life, and about how she personally finds resilience and strength to run a business in line with her principles. I hope you enjoy the conversation and do let me know over at risingup.substack.com. Homar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I have been a fan of your work for a very long time. I love yogurt. We call it most in, in Farsi. It always has a place at my table. In the culture I grew up in, yogurt was just an essential part of our story, especially for me and my family, because my grandmother actually used to hand make yogurt and sell it in the local town. Uh, my family from the north of Iran, from this very small town called Astana in Gilan. And Growing up, we used to have 10 dairy cows. So it's like a super small operation. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that when I first tried your yogurt back in 2016, it was just so visceral for me to feel like I was tasting something that was so far away from the commercial yogurt you get in mainstream stores. And it was just such a special product. I fell in love with it and then got to know you and your work. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot of years. We've been in business and it's just totally wild. And I do not come from a a dairy farming background in Iran or otherwise. And I do think I was personally caught by surprise at this visceral feeling you described not only in like you but in both Iranian and other American customers to just like have that aha moment when they first try it and I think 10 dairy cows is the perfect amount of dairy cows to have like there's a that's enough feeling like a villager mentality that I find to be like one of the most priceless principles that help guide me. You know, it's not about having a health food or having this gimmick. It's just this is a food that came from an animal that you take care of and you feed your fellow neighbors that you constantly live with this like very nurturing, accountable process. Absolutely. I think when you have that connection to food in small scale ways, it actually changes your whole relationship to food. So for people who've not tasted your yogurt, how would you describe the White Moustache Company? 
and how it came about. I started the business in New York City in 2013 with my father, and he has a big white handlebar mustache. (laughs) We just named it right after him. (laughs) Such a good name. We started out only in four stores, and since then, it's just been word of mouth. And we've been very, very, very lucky for that. But also I was committed to small scale, you know, um, even like to this day, we make an 80 gallon vats and then we like that's how much we like pasteurize in. And then we move on to like five gallon uh, containers for the rest of the process. Why was that important to you? I think it affects the taste and it also affects the feel. Like I feel like if you start working with bigger batches, forget you're working with food you're just working with this big machine I was like you're working with milk and that milk like you need to see it you need to touch it you need to know that it's going into somebody else's body there's that Iranian phrase when you eat and and we say nusha jun like that's hardcore that's not like you know have a good meal it's like your soul is going to be fed by this, not your body. Like I'm feeding the whole vibe. Um, like I take yeah. that very seriously. Um, That's our equivalent yeah. of bon appetit, but just like let your soul be nourished by what we're going to feed you. <laughs> like right. it goes deep. <laughs> Even if you don't like it, your soul's going to love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I would describe it as a handcrafted Iranian yogurt mainly because all of the flavors that we have with our yogurt is very iruni. So it's your your quince, your date, sour cherry. That is like the alubalu. It's not just any generic sour cherry. It's like that particular one that hits that nostalgia taste bud right in the back of your tongue. We do things in the most ancient way that I have access to. It's done in the most traditional way that I know how yogurt is made, and we stay very, very true to that craft. So we make sure that there isn't a commercial dry mouth powdery taste to the probiotics. We make sure that the milk we use is the freshest that we could possibly get. And we spend three days making each batch of yogurt from milk to the final product. And the fruit on the bottom is also treated with like the utmost obsessive amount of care almost worshiping that cherry or that drop of honey. Um, Like we all know that like each bee spends its lifetime producing one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. Like you don't fuck with that when you're putting that in like a bowl of, of yogurt. You make sure that like that customer who is spending a premium on the yogurt feels like that's the most special thing they eat all day. And like They will not get less than eight cherries per jar because someone is there counting each one. Like it's an obsessive, crazy gift. Like feeding someone is a gift. And we're absolutely positively inefficiently insane about making sure that that happens. And this is all just stuff I learned in Iran. But these are things that are universal, I think, to a lot of the human experience. For people who don't know what whey is, how would you describe it? So whey is the, so when you make yogurt and you strain it, and we strain it using a fine mesh cloth, the liquid that drips out of that is whey. And then you're left with a nice decadent creamy yogurt, but you're also left with this versatile, nutritious, hydrating ingredient, which is like the liquid. And sometimes if you open a commercial jar of yogurt, 
you see that liquid around it. And, and that's why, um, similar to how you get buttermilk when you make butter, similar how you get egg whites when you separate out the egg yolks. These are all very yin and yang pieces of the same starting point, which for us is milk. Yeah, every drop of it is is priceless. What's so magical about whey? The most magical thing about whey is that it is the last part of this process. And at the end of it, you have this highly filtered water that's full of probiotics. And it's full of the calcium that you find in milk. It's full of the vitamin D that you find in milk. But it's full of these like electrolytes and it just absorbs into your body in like an extremely hydrating way. Um, wah, wah. And the hydrating <laughs> properties of whey are probably the most traditional uses. Like people used to just guzzle this to replenish themselves after a long day on the farm or after a hike or after, a, you know, and to me, that's just the most beneficial way to feed your body uh, with this way. But also through this book, I'm hoping to show like the extremely versatile recipes and uses that the way can have. I think there are so many really interesting and accessible ways to use it, like the brining the turkey or like in cocktails. That was really interesting for me. Yeah, the flavor of the way is just like plain yogurt. It, it just doesn't have the solids or the fats in it to give it that creamy taste. So the, the tang and the lemony acid of uh, the liquid yogurt really, really shines through. And I sometimes feel like a crazy person um, in my jubilance of like all the different things it can do, like it can chop, it can dice, it can slice, it can like, um, you know, we brine with it, we pickle with it, we bake with it. And I didn't even have to reach very far for these inspirations. And I know that like, once you start using this in your own kitchen, like not only will you have a thick decadent way as a result of straining your yogurt, but you'll have this like liquid gold that you can drink uh, you can nourish yourself, your pets, your children, um, you know, and it helps with your digestive system. So, um, like, I really wanted to call my popsicles poopsicles, but that wasn't really, that didn't fly. Um, poopsicles, like, really? That did not happen. I'm still disappointed. That was a decision. Like, this is where I've started, like, just selling out. Like, I don't make the strong, bold decisions anymore. I've had the popsicles. They're nice. It's a very inspiring new ingredient. And again, like I feel like I'm cheating because I haven't invented anything. Like it was always there. I just get to celebrate it. So I've always been familiar with whey in terms of like there are certain kind of products that you can you can make with it. But it wasn't until I read your new book, which we will get to shortly, that I realized just how much whey is wasted in the conventional yogurt making process. And initially I was like, huh, that's a shame that's food waste. But then as you describe, it's actually kind of a pollutant as well. So it's not just like, hey, we're wasting this incredible product. It's actually damaging when we throw it away. Yeah. I mean, on the scale that it's done for larger yogurt manufacturers, I just find it I, I just find it crazy that we're throwing it away. Like like the egg example, like imagine if somebody was just making lemon curd, right? And so they were just using the egg yolks to make the curd, but they were throwing out the egg whites. 
And at some point, somebody discovered meringue. And now we have like all these delicious things that you can make with egg whites in addition to egg yolks. And like imagine a universe where like we were just throwing out egg whites. Like where would they go? Like eventually things get into the environment, they get into the food stream. And describing it as a food waste is very real. Describing it as a pollutant is very real. But I think the thing that really breaks my heart is how unnecessary it is, like how delicious this is and how there's such an insurmountable like education gap in trying to explain what this thing is and, and where it came from. And I'm, I, I'm having a lot of trouble with how hard it is. Like, I'm OK if you try it and you don't like it. But like, I can't even seem to be able to explain what it is. And that was my whole motivation. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write a whole book on it. <laughs> <laughs> so you just have a new book out. It's called Yogurt and Whey, Recipes of an Iranian Immigrant Life. It's your first book, your debut book. And I get a lot of cookbooks sent to me, like a lot. And I'm not just saying this. This is one of the best cookbooks I've read. And it is just one of the best pieces of writing I've read either. Last night I was prepping for this interview and just reading out loud bits of it to my partner because not only are you exceptional at translating the Iranian experience, the Zoroastrian experience, which we'll get onto, you know, yogurt way, but you're a very funny writer. Like I literally laughed out loud at the dedication. I'm not going to spoil it for listeners, but I just knew this is going to be a great book. <laughs> I'm glad you say that because and I'm very grateful. It took me nine years to write those first 25 pages of this book. Um, and it's deeply personal. It is an identity that I've struggled with that's kind of kept me from a lot of joys in my life. And I think that the humor is there, you know, the footnotes and the quips and the cursing at my children to kind of set the tone of like, look, this shit is going to be heavy, but we're going to be OK. Um, and it took myself a lot of convincing to get there. How would you describe the book? I would encourage anyone picking up the book to read it like a story. I would describe it as a diary. And it's full of my own personal stories. It's full of my own personal observations. It's about this little ingredient of way that I'm trying to discover and find solutions for. So I like encourage you to come along for that ride and that journey. Um, and like food and this language of recipes is the safest way for me to discuss my personal journey, but also like my entrepreneurial journey, my experience here in America, my relationship with my mom and dad, and it's all in there. And so I would, you know, I would almost encourage you not to be there just for the food. The food is, I think, like any gathering, the excuse to get people together. The food is the reason that you get nourished, but it's it's the connections that it builds. And, and that's something I crave more than anything, you know, this book was written in the same way I cook. Like, I like to do a lot of things alone. I hate to cook alone. Like, I like to have that, like, gaggle of women with their hundreds of fucking opinions being like, too much salt, too little this, do it that way, do it this way. And, like, there are so many fingerprints 
on the writing of this book to help polish, to help guide, to help coax along some of the things that were really hard for me to deal with in my own life, much less talk about, write about, and then publicly share. Yeah. There's a very frank openness. And I was just sitting there reading it with a cup of tea. And I just really oscillated from laughing out loud to feeling very moved by your descriptions of agrarian life in Yazd, where your family are from, uh, to then also just feeling so curious and then inspired by a business and a business model, which I think absolutely breaks the mold of what modern entrepreneurial ships would look like. So yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, uh, some of the weird, embarrassing things in the text that I feel expose me are are some of the more vulnerable parts where I talk about my relationship with success and money. It's where I talk about my embarrassment about the foods that we traditionally ate as children that I totally took for granted, how I made fun of my mom for like the carrot cake she made me as a kid that now I love and adore. Um, the green turkey that she made that I was embarrassed by because it didn't look like what it looked like on television. And so like it's almost these very childhood notions of food, success, American identity um, that I had to be very vulnerable about in the book that are kind of embarrassing to talk about. I don't think they are. I actually think they're super empowering. And also for me, just spoke of what I think all immigrants have, which is sadly when we're younger, many of us grow out of it, is just this internalized shame, I think. And that's what kind of the racism does, right? It makes you ashamed. But I think that is just so beautiful that you are able to put words to that. Yeah. The subtitle of the book is Recipes of an Iranian Immigrant Life. And certainly in the first 25 pages, as you mentioned, those themes are discussed in quite a lot of detail. And there's so many quotes that I kind of wrote down to pull out. But this is one that really, really struck me when I read it. It says, to hold on to a culture you feel in your bones, whilst at the same time assimilating to survive in a foreign country is an exhausting contradiction. And I think the reason that resonated so much with me is because it's such a shared, common, universal immigrant experience. Um, why did you want to tell this story? I think in a way it was part of that sadness in knowing some things were going to be lost with me and capturing a part of that and capturing those feelings that I know my own kids probably will never relate to. And, you know, I hope they don't relate to some of it, some of the heaviness and some of the anguish and some of the sadness. I also think it's helped me deal with a lot of that feeling of it being a burden and instead turning it into something to be celebrated and also very desperate for community as I clumsily grapple through what's next, what's it going to look like, whose voices are going to be interwoven with both this very individual experience I've had, but also this very universal feeling that a lot of communities do share and made mine a lightning rod that also incorporated a business and a very 
big city. It's definitely why I wrote The Saffron Tales. Uh, my grandfather died in 2011 and that kind of really jolted me and it prompted me to go and spend some months in Iran and spend some time with my grandmother and just I'd just be like cooking with her and while we were cooking I just would put my phone down and just record it just because I was thinking I need to document this like just for our family but I think later it kind of became like a therapy almost for me because like I'm half Iranian so it's even more confusing because even though like I literally, I went there when I was three months old. My family speak Farsi together, but like my dad's from Pakistan. So like actually what is my origin? I think the trauma that exists in all, everyone in the Iranian community for all kinds of reasons, but living with not only the struggles we've gone through, but also how we're de depicted to others. Um, anyway, this isn't supposed to be about me, but it just really resonated because I think sometimes you can just take all of that and say, okay, I'm just going to, show people like a little glimpse of some of the things that I love and cherish and by doing so like I keep them alive in me and in my family and maybe a few other people right. well I mean this is about you a little bit um because <laughs> you you writing the book that you did with saffron tales allowed me to write the book that I did mm. with yogurt and whey and in in this very way that you describe right like we are depicted a certain way and it's almost in that way that you have to sort of present yourself to get in the door to tell your fuller story. So you told the fuller story. And I can't even imagine because I'm even getting it. And I have like, you know, two Iranian parents. And it's like, like, is this Iranian enough? Is this on message enough? Is this like, and then, and, and so like, with my book, I got to build on what you made and to sort of change that stereotype, you know, like even whether it's called like Persian or Iranian, is it like associated with cats and rugs or a richer, fuller, you know, like I love the number of young Iranian kids in Iran who are into like death metal, like it's pretty rock and roll. Like that's like there's a very modern, beautiful, evolved identity that's almost like underground, but it's the normal. And I couldn't talk about half the stuff I talked about without you setting that groundwork. Oh, that's really, really generous. And I feel so touched. And I think that's what makes this work so inspiring right because it's ripples in human connection in that we're never actually even if we think we are working in isolation because we've got our ancestry and we've got our influence and we've got our future generations and yeah I think that there's all these concepts these days that's talked about a lot about like how to be a good ancestor and like what that means and to anyone listening who feels that from whatever culture they're from that they maybe want to document some of it I just encourage it because it is such a pleasure for yourself let alone for other people like now I look back and think wow did I really travel around the whole of Iran for months with a female photographer like what a gift um and yeah so if you're listening do it yeah <laughs> do it I mean it's also hard hard work like I think I mean it's yeah. the self-exploration yeah. that has to happen the honesty that has to happen I, you know, I remember like so many times I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing to be this like raw. But I think, you know, 
as we're being good ancestors, we're also setting up to heal a lot of traumas. And that's a vital work. And it's going to be clumsy, but it's vital. And like you said, like you really aren't alone. I've resonated so much with stories of African-Americans and Native Americans, and I have nothing in common with those communities, except I get so much strength from their vulnerability, their journey. And, you know, I champion a lot of their causes because that also helps heal me. And I feel like over the years, I've been very uplifted by those very micro connections that you can make. Um, And so I also highly encourage everyone to like, take their history, celebrate it in any way you can, whether it's a cookbook or poetry or illustration or anything. So a big part of the book is Zoroastrian culture. Tell me a bit about why it was important for you for that to be a central part of the story. Because uh, it's a central part of, of me. My family is from Yazd. And there's a large Zoroastrian community there. When we immigrated here to the United States, we moved into uh, a Zoroastrian community in Orange County who raised me, who lifted me, who guided me, who encouraged me. Like, I feel them on every podcast, every show, on every page. And they, they are so dear to me. And, you know, I started this book before I'd even met my husband or had my kids. And I remember feeling at the time, I wonder if this connection to the Zoroastrian identity is going to make me inaccessible to anybody else. And it was through exploring it that I did, you know, find my partner and then have kids and then be able to have the conversation of what do I want to do with this very big, big part of me is always celebrated in isolation, that is always celebrated only in this community. Um, And I do, I feel safest when I don't have to explain myself, which is there. And I'm learning that my life needs to be bigger than that if I'm going to make it, you know, Um, and to make room for a partner and to make room for a full family and neighbors and community engagement. And now I find that like, having done that work has really opened me up to that exploration. But that Zoroastrian identity, it's like my blood. It's just... Well, it is your blood. It is my blood, yeah. Yeah. Um, So Zoroastrianism, is it the world's first monotheistic religion? It is the first monotheistic religion in the world. And the reason that it's a little controversial is because our main guy, Zartusht wasn't like a prophet sent from God, but was just a philosopher. And he was like, hey, guys, I think like there's just one God. And I think there's one energy source, one like supreme being that is about righteousness and light and fire and brilliance and overcoming darkness. These are things that Zoroastrianism represents and is like quite, quite simple as a religion. Like the tenets are just good thoughts, good words, good deeds. So it's a very ancient, very elemental religion, I always think, because of the fire and the water and the air. It's just, you know, very elemental. What I've always found interesting is how, even though Iran is now a predominantly Muslim country, those Zoroastrian traditions are just still so deeply embedded within the culture. Right. 
whether it's like Nowruz or Yalda or Winter Solstice, those Zoroastrian traditions are still held to be very important to many people. Right. I, and and like that's the cultural aspect, I think, of the culture that was there in part of the Persian Empire. Yeah. The entire Persian Empire was Zoroastrian. Which is why, for example, today, um, uh, Nowruz is celebrated throughout lots of Central Asian countries, through Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, etc. It's that kind of remnants of Zoroastrian culture. Right. And the Iranian Zoroastrian community that I belong to there's only about 20,000 or so left within Iran. And I'm glad I captured at least my story. Yeah. So I'd love to talk to you about your business and some of the really bold choices I think you've made over the last few years that set you apart, I think, in the entrepreneurial community. <laughs> There's a funny bit in the book where you kind of like almost describe your business strategy as anti-growth, which I know it <laughs> isn't like strictly true, but also actually is a reflection of how time and again over this journey that you've had with the White Moustache Yogurt Company, it's been about making choices that are about being in alignment with your values. And that made me think you must have quite a strong inner compass how do you know when a decision feels right or wrong? I think the way that White Mustache got started is very important to the decisions I'm making, like both in terms of how tied it is to my Zoroastrian Iranian identity and this art of making yogurt, the way your grandmother also made yogurt. Like that is so powerful to me that I don't want ever to like mess with that and I feel an enormous sense of obligation to it. And it's that sense of obligation to it that I feel like I'm not the boss of white mustache. Like the yogurt is the boss of white mustache. And the yogurt is telling me like, you're not going to make more if you're throwing this stuff away. Like you're not going to make more if you don't have like a plan for this. Yeah. And would you describe that as central to your business philosophy? Yeah, I don't have a bit. I just have like, I just have a gut. And post-pandemic, my gut is dangerous, right? Because if it was just me, I would have no problems just following my gut. But now I have a team who has carried me in this company through the pandemic. And I feel like my sense of obligation has grown now to the yogurt and also to this team. And so that's been a new chapter in the business. But in terms of some of those bold decisions you say we made, but like even only featuring Iranian flavors for my yogurt was a bold decision. Like no blueberry, no chocolate, no pumpkin spice, even though I love pumpkin spice. Um, it's just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stick to my Iran. Like even that was like, oh shit, I don't know if this is like something people want. But it's the truest only thing that I can provide. And with the way, too, it was such an obvious thing to me. It was like, yeah, why would I make more if I'm just throwing away this stuff? And if you want to think of it like a financial person, I actually thought I was being very ambitious. Like I thought, here's another revenue stream that's available to me. I, I just didn't count on it being so difficult. But right now I'm in the middle of it. Hopefully we'll talk in like 10 years when I have the opposite problem where I have to make 
whey drinks and whey pops to keep up um, with that demand. Like, so you made a decision that at some point, you know, the yogurt business is doing really well. It's growing at a pace, getting more popular, getting more kind of distribution. You know, you became, I think, so moved. And it was like an emotional kind of reaction, I think, to the way being wasted that you were like, you know what, we're not going to scale up until we know how we're going to sell the way. So you just decided to scale back, right? And or stay at the same level. How would you describe it? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because I was like, if I had a business plan, it would be just like one word and it would be feelings. Um, <laughs> and you know what? You probably got so many probiotics in your gut that you are like, right, you are like <laughs> pinging from the right direction. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> feelings. Um, um, and so in 2014, Whole Foods had just picked us up and I was like, well, this is awesome because now like I'm just going to bottle up the whey and sell it and I'm going to have a yogurt and whey company and then I'll like grow together so that I'm not wasting anything. And again, like I actually thought this was like very financially ambitious. I'm like reloaded. And then like the opposite happened where like everyone was like, what is this? What do I do with it? What does it taste like? Is this about Little Miss Muffet? And I was like, there is no point of reference for this ingredient. And even explaining that it came from milk was confusing and really made me realize how much of like the population doesn't really know where their food is coming from, has never milked a cow. Why would you, you know? Um, and, and so ever since 2014, I've made this commitment to not scale up my business until I found an outlet for the way. And, you know, it hasn't been a 100% commitment in that, like, I've had to scale up a little bit in order to just survive. But like, I currently have a wait list of 72 stores that want the yogurt, and I won't provide yogurt to them uh, until we find an outlet for the way. And I wrote the book in order to help inspire other chefs and folks and community members to, to help me use the way and to know how versatile it is. But it hasn't been as successful or as quick as I wanted to. And like we make our own line of drinks. We make our own line of popsicles to try to put a dent in it. We sell portions of it to other drink makers, a vodka maker. Um, and it's like, you know, slowly, like I believe like drop by drop, it'll find its way. Wah, wah. Um, <laughs> but it just... I'm like, in, I'm in the middle of that work and I have to just keep my head down, keep going um, and hope to come out on the other end of it because I would like to tell the story. I would like to deeply, deeply tell the story about a company who survived without having to do this really gross thing where you just lose sight of what you're doing and being connected to the land and being connected to the food. Like to this day, I've fostered relationships with all of my stores and they know like if I don't get milk from my farm, I'm not making yogurt that week. And the fact that anyone puts up with that is kind of a miracle. Um, and I don't take that lightly, but like that's just the way it is. Like, if you didn't get the milk, you didn't get the yogurt. Like, and and I can't mess with people's trust in me. I can't mess with, like, my own process. And it's not easy commitment to make when you have a team as well. So we've been very fortunate. And now it's White Mustache's, like, time to really commit to, to the way 
as a product of its own. Like I didn't want to do that necessarily. I really wanted others to make it for us, but we'll see what happens. Well, it's a real testament to your resilience. I mean, it's hard enough being an entrepreneur in any climate, but I think people connect with integrity. They connect with values. Part of me was thinking as you were talking, oh, in a way that's so pioneering, but it's traditional as well. It's this kind of very strange kind of place. No, you're absolutely (laughs) right. Like this is the way things were done. I've made a distinction between like commerce and capitalism. Like capitalism is doing something funky, but like commerce has existed for years. And that's based on these intangibles, right? That's based on integrity, trust, quality, haggling, you know, it's just like this whole culture of commerce that I think is very valuable and beautiful and an interwoven safety net amongst ourselves. And I'm doing it in a capitalistic place. Like sometimes I'm just like, dude, I need to like tap out because some of these decisions I'm making are really risky. Like this decision with like the way is very risky. Um, but I really believe it. Like, I actually have no choice, but to like the milk and the yogurt are telling me like, this is the job. And I'm like, all right, that's the job. We're going to go do it. We're going to, we're going to (laughs) honor you for just being awesome. It's, it's so inspiring. Seriously. Just on this kind of point, you write in the book that watching the business grow, given all the obstacles and challenges that you've faced, has redefined your notions of success and failure. I was really curious about that. What, what does that mean for you? Um, so I was an attorney before I started all of this. And that was my idea of success, like achieving a certain salary, working in a type of setting, dressing a certain way in like fancy suits was like this childish idea of what I thought success in making it was. And now it's the things that I'm talking to you about. The fact that I'm talking to you is success to me. And the fact that I get to explore these ideas that otherwise might feel like a waste of time or frivolous seems like success to me. Talking about the way as the most valuable thing that I get to interact with even though it doesn't have these benchmarks of like financial or volume or anything like that to me is a definition of success. The fact that I can even have the luxury to focus my entire business on it is a success. And and these are intangible things. These are not anything I could put on a shelf or put in a bank, but they feed me so, so much. And it feeds my creative energy. It feeds my bandwidth. And that's priceless. Um, And it took a long time for me to learn that and to really have faith to pursue those gifts and those successes. And there's been a ton of failures along the way with that. But just holding that kind of as my North Star uh, has been deeply counterintuitively very rewarding to me. And I get to talk to you. so. So one of the reasons I set up this Substack and one of the reasons I wanted to speak to people kind of follows on from the point you were making because I find that just in many ways it's just quite exhausting like existing in today's world and so one of the things I'm really curious about is how we all fill our wells and kind of what gives us strength and resilience you've been through a lot in the last kind of however many years of this business 
Where do you get your strength from to keep going? And what gives you hope? I struggle with this topic a lot. Um, I mean, I, I sometimes feel like it's a cop out my way to make peace with making money. I'm just like, how do I go to like full on barter system and not like become homeless in this fucking country? Um, it's it, yeah. The, and your last question was so perfect. Yes. I mean, about like being exhausted in modern like it's not necessary. It's not necessary. And yet, especially in places like New York City, hustle culture is just like elevated to not just a way of life. But like if you aren't hustling, mm -hmm. like there's something wrong yeah. with you. And I have really been trying to push back against that in some of my work in recent years with varying amounts of success um, because I just don't think we need to all be so exhausted all the time. Yeah, our survival can't depend on where you land on that, you know? And I find myself getting very angry at how difficult it is to maneuver in modern life, whether it's insurance documentation or all the fucking passwords you have to remember just to survive on your laptop, um, down to like little things um, like logistics. I just find like life just got very difficult. And I think the only thing that really fills my well is, is people. And I, I, I'm surprised to say this, actually, because I always thought I was like a little bit afraid of people. But it's those one on one connections that you make um, and just share a story or a moment, like even if it's like waiting in line for a coffee and you smirk at something at the same time as another human being. And I think I'm I'm realizing how little of those daily interactions, those daily moments I've savored. And I try to savor more of those. And and in a very, very little way, that fills my well. It, it just taps into this idea. You know how like mushrooms like set these little webs and they all talk to each other? I kind of feel like it's those moments that like my little web gets lit up. But I struggle with this a lot. Um, and I usually land in anger. But um, I'm working on it. I landing in anger is is very helpful. Um, but I also completely agree with you. I think the pandemic made me realize how actually connection is at the heart of how I, I need to live. So grateful that you took the time to have a little connection with me today. I also hope that it inspires anyone listening to think about way and perhaps even make some yogurt oh my, there's so many things I loved about the book but last night I was showing my partner a beautiful drawing of a bowl of milk and then someone's pinky in the milk and you know when the milk has cooled to the amount it needs to to make the yogurt because you can hold it in there for you remind me you wrote the book but like three, three seconds. seconds yeah and it's just so intimate. And I was just like, you know what? I've seen my family make yogurt, cover it with cloth. You make it at night. It's there in the morning. Um, I hope this inspires lots of other people to do that too. I'm sure this book and the work that you've done is making not only your ancestors proud, but has given your daughters such a beautiful legacy to walk through life with. Thank you so much. And thank you for laying a lot of the groundwork for me to do this work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rising Up with me, Yasmin Khan. I hope we've inspired you to seek out Homer's yogurt and buy her new book, Yogurt and Whey. 
I also urge you to have a go at making your own yogurt and whey. It's quicker than kombucha with the same health benefits and adds an exciting new edge to your home cooking. And you'll be part of Homer's mission to reduce food waste. So it's win-win. To follow the conversation, head over to risingup.substack.com and let me know what you thought of the episode. Today's show was presented by me, Yasmin Khan, and produced by Lena Presswood at Scenery Studios. If you've enjoyed this conversation and know someone who might like to hear it too, be a good friend and forward them the link. See you next time.